the reading will be uh, Song of Songs chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 2 till verse 17. Um, I'm going to stand up because I've got about eight words to say as friends. Uh, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Friends, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely. Daughters of Jerusalem, uh, dark like the tents of Cada, Cada? Um, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make your earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. So yeah, Rich is going to come up and, and preach now. Um, as he does, I'll, I'll pray for him and for us. Thank you, our Father God, for Richard. Thank you that you have brought him to be uh, the leader of this church, to uh, give him the gifts of teaching and opening your word to us. We pray that by your spirit you would be speaking through him to uh, speak to us what you want to say to us. And we pray that you would uh, soften our hearts and enlighten the, the eyes of our hearts, that we would see what you want to say. We pray that you would be changing us today, and that you would help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just to start with, I wonder, sir, what is your favorite emotional bit of TV? Again, what sort of TV programs do you watch? You, you can pretty much guarantee they'll get you weeping. They'll get you emotional. And um, here's sort of a selection of some of the things from our family. Call the Midwife. Um, we don't watch it much, but it's the old lady voiceover at the end. Kind of just always gets me slightly weepy. My, my son mocks me about it. I can just not watch the whole episode and she'll start talking about something. Oh, friendship was what we learned. And I just start sobbing. Um, Band of Brothers. Actually, we're re-watching. Well, um, Lil and I are re-watching, showing it to Noah. That is an intensely emotional drama. So Band of Brothers is very intense. This is us. Um, Lily says she averages about three weeps per episode. Um, and match of the day, depending on how West Ham are doing, Noah can get extremely emotional watching match of the day. And there's plenty of emotional TV out there. Um, for my money, probably the most emotional program on TV at the minute is The Repair Shop. 
on PVC One. If you've not seen it, it's a very gentle program with a very simple premise. It's someone brings in a damaged old item from their home that means a lot to them for whatever reason. Maybe it's an old toy from their childhood. Maybe it's something that belonged to their mom or their dad or their grandparents. And usually the item is falling apart. And Jay Blades and his team of mild-mannered experts sort of take the item and they lovingly repair it and restore it in the course of the episode. And the real emotional kick of the program comes when the owner of the item returns and is reunited with it at the end of the episode. And nine times out of ten, they weep tears of joy when they see it restored and back to its former glory. It's lovely, gentle TV, but I also want to suggest there's a little glimpse of the gospel in the repair shop. A little glimpse of how God relates and responds to broken, damaged people like each and every one of us. There's a phrase I came across a few years ago in a book written to help married couples, and it's really stuck with me as capturing something of the beauty and the power of God's redeeming grace to us in Jesus. And it goes like this. It says, to the God of grace, the repaired is more beautiful than the new. To the God of grace, the repaired is more beautiful than the new. Again, most of us think that once something is broken, it can never be as good as it once was. That applies to the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, and we presume it also applies to us. So once we've made a mess of our lives or of our relationship through the sins we have committed, the sins that have been committed against us, usually a mixture of both, we think to ourselves, well, that's it. There's no way back from this. No one will want anything to do with me now, least of all, a holy God. You see, at the heart of the gospel is this amazing truth, and it's a truth we can never hear too often because it's going to take Christians the whole of eternity to grasp it, really. That the God of the gospel is bigger than our mistakes, and he's bigger than any guilt or shame we may carry around with us. The God of the gospel is committed to forgiving us and washing us clean and restoring us as we put our faith in Jesus. And all he asks us to do is to come to him with our brokenness, come to him with our guilt and our shame. And he promises to receive us and to accept us and to wash us clean because of the saving work of Jesus at the cross. And I believe this next section of Song of Songs gives us a beautiful picture of what God's redeeming, restoring grace looks like in practice. The picture it uses is of the love between a woman with a troubled past And a man who looks beyond that and accepts her and delights in her. And the truth it points us to is one we're going to see throughout this song. That Jesus is the lover of my soul if we're a Christian. And he knows everything about me, all my sin and shame. And yet, he does not reject me. Instead, he loves me passionately and his love for me makes me beautiful in his sight. That is part of the gospel message of this bit of the Song of Songs. Let's look at this section of the song now. Now, following our introduction to the song last week, I asked Chris and Anto to actually just recap those verses two to four. So here, this bit of chapter one is where the real love duet at the heart of the song begins in earnest. 
So last week we heard from the woman and her friends. This week we hear from the man in the song for the first time from verse 8 onwards. But before we hear from the man, the woman has a bit more to tell us and him about herself. And we learn in verses 5 to 6, this woman has a troubled, difficult past that still affects her today. And we get that from what she says to the man and to her friend. She says, do not stare at me because I am dark. This is referring to the woman's difficult past. Let me read verses 5 to 6 for us again. The woman speaking, Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard, I had to neglect. Now, how are we meant to understand what the woman is saying here? It's important to point out straight away, these verses aren't a comment on the woman's race. It's not a value judgment on a particular skin tone here. No, by acknowledging that she has dark skin, the woman is acknowledging she is a peasant girl. She's been forced to work outside on the farm by her family. Her dark skin is evidence of sun damage and actually evidence of her poverty. See, in ancient Israel, a wealthy woman could stay out of the sun. It would be her servants or slaves who worked outside for her. The wealthier you were, the lighter your skin would be. So having a tan was not an attractive quality in ancient Israel. And actually, more recently, you see that. You walk around an old National Trust property in the porches. The women are often really pale. And that was a sign of beauty, a sign, I don't need to go outside. I can stay inside. But this woman, it's different in the Song of Songs. She is not wealthy. She is a poor peasant girl who's been out in the sun too much. And more than that, we learn she has suffered neglect at the hands of her family with no one to protect or provide for her. Verse 6 again, my mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. And she doesn't say my brother, she says my mother's sons. So maybe these are step brothers. Whoever they are, they haven't cared for her at all. They forced her to work outside in the fields under the blazing sun. And the result is, I am darkened by the sun, she says. I am sun damaged. And as a result, she's self-conscious about how she looks. The woman knows she doesn't fit the conventional stereotypes of beauty in ancient Israel. And in a sense, you can almost hear her defiance of her critics in verse 5. She goes, dark am I, yet lovely daughters of Jerusalem. And in the next line, I sort of wonder if she's quoting some of the insults she would have heard because of her appearance. Dark like the tents of Kedar. Now, the tents of Kedar, that was a, that was a Bedouin nomadic tribe, and they traveled around in tents. So maybe someone, a cruel person, has likened her sun-damaged skin to the dark, coarse material you'd use to make a tent. Again, it is not a flattering image at all. And if that is an insult, well, she's not taking the insult lying down. She urges the daughters of Jerusalem, and she urges the man she's talking to to look beyond her outward appearance. She goes, dark like the tents of Kedar, yes, but also like the tent curtains of Solomon, like the wall hangings you might find in a royal palace. I am dark, she says, but, but, but I'm also beautiful, man. She's urging the people around her not to reject her because of her appearance. And here we get this fear of rejection in the woman here. Now, what are we to make of this 
bit of the Word of God. It's from an ancient time. It's a long time ago. But we saw last week the Song of Songs. It's both a book of wisdom, giving us a sort of practical teaching about human relationships, and it's a celebration of the gospel, of God's redeeming love for us. So where's the wisdom in this section? Well, like the woman's culture all those centuries ago, we live in an image-obsessed culture today where anyone who doesn't measure up to conventional ideas of beauty often is left feeling worthless or ugly. Don't stare at me. I know I don't measure up. And of course, it doesn't matter that the modern ideals of beauty for women are almost impossible to achieve naturally, sort of the fuller lips, larger eyes, slim nose, aristocratic cheeks, or Kim Kardashian. Actually, you can't do that without filters, so we use filters. We change our appearance to try and look more attractive, more desirable, because we're frightened. People see us how we really are. Don't stare at me. Don't look at me. I think this bit of Song of Songs reminds us we're not the first generation to feel that way. We're not the first generation to feel insecure about our bodies or our appearance. Actually, the Bible understands that far better than we think it does. Look back at Genesis chapter 2. Before the fall, the man and woman are both naked. They felt no shame. After the fall, shame enters the picture. We all know what it feels like to be insecure about our appearance. So in one sense, the woman here, in urging the man to look beyond outward appearance, she's actually urging all of us to do the same. She invites us to look closer at the people around us, to recognize that beauty comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. We're all made in the image of God, Scripture tells us. The psalmist puts it, we're all fearfully and wonderfully made. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to see the Song of Songs has a lot to say to us about our bodies. But for now, just let's listen to the voice of the woman as a challenge to us. Don't become obsessed with physical appearance. Don't despair if you don't measure up. And stop judging people on how they look to you. But if that's something of the wisdom of this section, what about the gospel message? I think it's a powerful one. If you like the woman here, we are all damaged by the sun. We're all sun-damaged by a world of sin and death, by a world marked by sin and by suffering. We're damaged by the sins we have committed, and we're damaged by the sins people have committed against us. We've all said and done things that have hurt God, other people, ourselves. And we've had things said and done to us that have damaged us. And as a result, we're all familiar with guilt and with shame. A few years ago, someone really helped me understand some of the distinctions between guilt and shame. And it's like guilt you could summarize as the fear of the discovery of what I have done. And shame is the fear of the discovery of who I am. Guilt is maybe more about what I've done. I know I've done wrong. I don't want people to know. Shame, I'm the sort of person who did that. Or I'm the sort of person who that was done to. And again, I think here the woman is more a picture of shame than of guilt here. More a picture of someone who has been sinned against than sinning, but actually the results are the same. She fears rejection. She thinks, will I be rejected by the people around me? Will I be rejected by the man I love in this song? If people really look closely, if people really come to know me, maybe they'll just treat me the way my stepbrothers 
did. And the result is maybe she is tempted to keep everyone at arm's length. I don't want people to know the sort of person I am. I don't want people to look closely. And it can lead us to keep God at arm's length. I don't want God to look too closely at who I am. Don't look at me, we say. Don't stare at me. Just, just, just turn a blind eye. Just, just turn your face. I don't want you seeing who I really am. But again, as we pursue this gospel message in the song, the question really becomes, well, how does God respond to people marked by guilt and shame? Does God just reject us the way people often do? And honestly, the glorious answer this song gives us is no, he does not reject us. God will not reject anyone who comes to him through Jesus, no matter how damaged or broken or ashamed we may feel. Jesus is the lover of our souls and he welcomes us, he wants us, and he declares us beautiful in his sight. That's what the rest of this section of the song helps us to see. Verses 7 to 17, how beautiful you are, my darling. We can hear these words of the song as the healing words of the man spoken to the woman. So looking down at verse 7, the woman addresses the man she loves directly, and she expresses her desire to be near him. So back in verse 4, she likened him to a king. Here we learn his job is actually that of a shepherd. And because he's a shepherd, he's constantly on the move. He's, he's wandering around, following where his sheep go. So the woman wants to know where she can find him. And it's really striking here. The woman is desperate to be near the man. She seems to sense something different about him. He's not like the people who would look down on her or insult her or reject her. No, with him, she believes, she might just find the acceptance she longs for. So she asks him directly, where is he going to be? Look at the end of verse 7. She doesn't want to skulk around in private. Why should it be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? A veiled woman is probably a reference to the prostitutes that would visit shepherds when they were out in the fields. No, she says she wants to be, to be with him. She wants to do it above board. She expresses that desire publicly with her friends listening in. She doesn't want to skulk around. But the big question is at this point, we still haven't heard the man speak. How will the man respond to this woman? Will he be put off by the woman's sun-damaged skin, her poverty? Will he be put off by, by the wounds that she carries? Will he want nothing to do with a woman with that sort of history? We look at verse 8 to get the answer. I take this to be the voice of the man speaking. The NIV says it's the friends. So either way, it is good news for the woman because there is a way to find this shepherd and be near him. And why? Because he wants her to find him. He wants her to be near him. Verse 8, if you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. See, instead of rejecting her, the man calls her the most beautiful of women. And he invites her to come near to him. Again, in the story of the song, this is like the early days of courtship for this couple. So this scene is a public one. The man is surrounded by his fellow shepherds, his friends. The couple aren't yet alone together. They're not yet married. They're going to get there halfway through the song. But it's clear right from the moment the man opens his mouth, she doesn't have to be frightened about how he's going to respond to her because he's not going to reject her. Quite the opposite. He welcomes her. He accepts her and he delights in her. 
And just look at verses 9 to 11 for the evidence. of These are the healing words of the man. Verse 9, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Again, we saw last week, that doesn't translate immediately for us. You know what I love about you, darling? You're just like a horse. But we need to understand something about this image. So Pharaoh's chariot horses, these would have been the horses that belonged to one of the great superpowers of the day, ancient Egypt. They would have been richly decorated and they would have been desired and sought after. The equivalent of a flashy racing car, potentially today. See, to the man here, the woman isn't just a peasant girl or a farm laborer. No, she is someone to be desired. She is beautiful and she is to be sought after. She is noble in the way she appears to him. And for a peasant girl who's used to to people just looking down on her or dismissing her, think of the impact that would have on her. It's not quite as strange a description as it first sounds. And in verse 10, the man praises the woman's cheek and neck. And famously, Song of Songs goes into a bit more detail of other parts of the body as we go on. But again, this is the early days of their courtship. So he's going, yes, your face and your neck are beautiful, he says. And verse 11, he wants to give her earrings of gold studded with silver so that her beauty can be seen more clearly. Again, what he's saying here is, not only do I see you and desire you, I want other people to see just how beautiful you are by the gifts I want to give you. And verse 12, the woman responds, and we see their mutual love for each other just growing and growing here. She likens the shepherd, verse 12, to a king at his table. And verses 13 to 14, so she wants to be as close to him as it is physically possible to be. Again, the setting here, it's a public setting. It's a meal with the man and his friends. They're still courting, and there's a right and necessary distance between them at this stage, but the woman is already longing for the day when that distance will be no more. Verse 13, she wants him to be a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. She wants to be as close as it's physically possible to be. And verse 14, she likens him to a cluster of henna blossoms. This is a a fragrant flower from the vineyards of En It was near the Dead Sea. It was a place famous for its royal vineyards. In the middle of the desert, you'd have these amazing just smells and sights of flowers everywhere. And again, what the woman's saying here is, in contrast to the heat of the sun that has darkened her skin, that has hurt her and oppressed her, this man is like a fragrant flower. He offers her life and fragrance and shade in a hot world that hurts her and has hurt her. And verse 15 to 16, their culmination of this mutual praise and delight. Verse 15, how beautiful you are, my darling, says the man. Oh, how beautiful, your eyes are doves. And the woman replies, and actually identical language in the Hebrew, a little bit obscured. She goes, how beautiful you are, my beloved. Oh, how beautiful, and our bed is verdant. They're dreaming of the life they may share together, the home they will build, verse 17, solid and secure. They're not really hanging about here. It's pretty powerful stuff what they're saying to each other. So again, what are we to make of this love duet today? Again, I think there's wisdom here for us and there's gospel here for us. And if you're married here this morning, there is wisdom here for you. 
The wisdom for my couples, I think, is love grows through how we speak to one another. And it's, it's, it's powerful looking at this. You can think, is this anything like what we say to each other in our marriages? I suspect probably not. Some of that's cultural. Some of that's, we maybe don't think horses are very desirable. But actually, the words you use when speaking to your spouse, what are they like? Are they words of acceptance, encouragement, delight, or are they words of criticism or belittling? Because actually, not only do we learn that the man and the woman love each other in this bit, we actually see their love for each other grow as they speak words of affection and thankfulness to one another. So like any relationship, love in a marriage needs to be fed and nurtured if it's going to grow into real intimacy. And Lily and I, when we do marriage prep for engaged couples at Avenue, we often talk about this sort of biblical call that on your wedding day, you're receiving the other person. You're receiving the person as a gift from God. So we sort of say, on your wedding day, you see your, 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 the bride or the groom, and you go, well, this is the man, this is the woman God has given me. And yet you say to yourself, I'm going to receive this person from a loving God. No one else would do. I'm going to trust that this is the person who is a gift from God, the gift that I need. But of course, what this bit of the song says, that shouldn't stop on your wedding day. Receiving one another as a gift from God it's something we need to go on doing to see love grow and deepen. So tell your spouse what you love about them. Enjoy each other's physical appearance and body. Speak words of acceptance and affirmation of each other. Because again, you look at the, the, the impact this has on the woman. Ultimately, by the end of this bit of the song, it doesn't matter what other people think of her. She knows that to this man, she is beautiful. The man she loves thinks she is beautiful. So if you're married here today, commit yourself to speaking words that build up and encourage your husband or your wife. Don't belittle them or make fun of them. It's not always serious and intensely serious or poetic, but say words that encourage. Thank God for each other. Speak words of acceptance and affection and see your love grow as the man and woman's love grows. But actually, there is wisdom for everyone, not just married couples here. Because again, we see here, use words to build others up according to their needs. Language is powerful here. And you can't read the song songs without seeing the power that words have. And that phrase, to build others up according to their needs, comes from the New Testament, the letter to the Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul writes this to a local church. He says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. See, Paul would agree wholeheartedly with the woman in this song. Words are powerful. They can build up or they can tear down. They can heal or they can hurt. Can you think the woman thinking back in verse 5 to people likening her to, to, to a tent, to the material you make a tent out of, those words have stuck with her. They've hurt her. My dad is in his early 80s. He still remembers things his brother said to him when he was a toddler. It still kind of hangs over their relationship. Words are powerful. Use words that build up, not tear down. And Paul's command here is for a local church like ours. A 
local church like should be a place of healing words where we speak the truths of the gospel in love to one another. Why? Well, because we're all damaged by the sun in this world. We've all got wounds and evidence of sun damage. We're all fallen. We all have wounds. None of us is perfect. And each one of us needs to hear the words of the gospel from fellow believers to remind us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to seek and to save the lost. And he does not reject us. He has taken all our guilt and shame on himself at the cross. And that reality is the power to transform the way we speak and love and serve and help one another as a church family. The words are powerful, the song tells us. But the words Jesus speaks over us are even more powerful than any words we can say. Can I wonder, as we listen to the song this morning, what are the areas of your life where you're tempted to say to God, don't look at me, or don't look at that? I don't want you going there, God. There's these things, but not these things. Don't stare at me, God. Because if you do, you might not like what you see. But I want us to see that in the love this man demonstrates to the woman is the greater love that Jesus demonstrates to anyone who puts their trust in him. The gospel message here is that Jesus knows us fully and he still loves us passionately. He knows everything about us, all our guilt and our shame. Actually, it is crazy for us to say, God, don't look at that. I don't want you seeing that because the Bible says God sees everything. That's partly why we're scared of him a lot of the time. But actually, in the gospel, he has dealt with it all at the cross by taking our place and our punishment on himself in the person of his son, Jesus. And as a result, his love for us has the power to heal and restore and transform every one of us in those areas where we feel damaged and broken. I love the way Tim and Kathy Keller reflect on this. In a book on marriage, they say this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. We say, well, they like me, but they don't really know me. You know, that's quite nice, but it's not much. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, that's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Jesus knows us fully and he loves us passionately. He sees all the evidence of sin and suffering and he doesn't walk away. And we see here, I think they really helped at the end show this isn't just self-indulgent, grasping hold something of the love Jesus has for us. Because it's only as we begin to grasp the full extent of Jesus' love that we can be fortified for any difficulty life can throw at us. Because the thing is, in the world, the insults will fly. In the world, we will not always be loved and accepted. In the world, we struggle to forgive one another and receive one another. That's why we need to know just how deeply forgiven and loved and received we are by Jesus. And when we're called to love people when that's hard, when people don't receive us the way we want them to, then the only way to keep going in that is we realize actually 
even if this other person is not going to love me the way I want them to. Jesus loves me perfectly. He knows everything about me. And he will not walk away from me. Jesus knows us fully and loves us passionately. And Jesus will not reject anyone who comes to him in faith. No matter what we have done, no matter what has been done to us, Jesus is not ashamed of us. The picture we get here is of a man who sees a woman with all her brokenness and her shame, and he still receives her. And that is a picture of the gospel. Jesus is the power to redeem us and wash us clean and restore us because of his saving death on the cross. That picture, that phrase from that book I talked about earlier, for Jesus, the repaired really is more beautiful than the new. The repair shop, they bring this old mangled doll that will never look the way it did at the end. Look at that. Amazing. That is Jesus redeeming love for us. And again, where the Song of Songs pushes us sort of almost out of our comfort zone is not only would Jesus not reject us, he declares us beautiful when we come to him in faith. Again, that's where just my mind gets blown by that. Again, we said last week, we maybe get that Jesus tolerates us. He kind of has to keep us around. He promised in the gospel he would. But actually, no, he declares us beautiful in his sight. What the man says to the woman here is basically what everyone really wants to hear from another human being. You are beautiful and I love you. And in the gospel, that is what Jesus says to every single man, woman, and child who puts their trust in him. And amazingly, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, declares you beautiful, you're not allowed to argue. <laughs> we could get all embarrassed. Oh, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not. Jesus knows what he's talking about. And he makes us beautiful in his sight. Again, a helpful guide on this is the um, Protestant reformer Martin Luther. He used to coin this phrase to help us grasp something of how a holy God could call sinful people beautiful. He wrote, we are not loved because we are beautiful. We are beautiful because we are loved. See the way the woman's beauty increases as she is received in love by the man. That's what happens in the gospel. We're maybe not beautiful in and of ourselves. Scripture says we're definitely not because of our sin. But we are beautiful because he declares us beautiful out of his grace and his love. And we want to explore more of that in the weeks to come. But as we leave the Song of Songs this week, I want us to learn from this picture, this love duet that we've been listening to. I want us to learn from the woman here. The woman does everything she can to get near the man she loves because she thinks he maybe will accept her. And she discovers that he will. I want us to learn from the woman. She's like the voice of wisdom crying out here. Get close to Jesus. Go near to him as close as you can and cry out to him to help you in this world. And then listen to what the man says, the words of love and acceptance and delight that Jesus declares over his bride, the church. How are you going to respond to Jesus' deep love for you this week in Christ? Will you go to him? Will you ask him to meet with you? Will you listen to his words of healing above and beyond the words we hear of the world around us? 
And will you allow his love for you to strengthen you so that you love him and you love the people around you more and more in your life this week? Let me just read those words of the lover in this song again. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you that your word knows us and knows the world we live in. Lord, even with a poetic love song like this that feels so removed from us, Lord, when we really slow down and listen, this woman is so much like us and wonderfully, gloriously, you are so much like the man who receives and accepts and delights in her. Lord God, please, we pray as we continue to understand more of your love and delight and desire for us, that the impact of that would be that we love and delight and desire you more and more in our lives. And would you strengthen us and transform us so we're able to keep trusting in you in this world, in the heat of the sun, and so that we can love those around us who also have been damaged and broken by sin and by suffering. Father God, thank you for your deep love for us in this song. And by your Holy Spirit, would that become more and more a reality in our lives in the days to come. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.